you've got, you probably remember, you know, like, oh, I'm supposed to be at my exam. And you're not at your exam, those kinds of dreams. Well, for me, usually it takes the form of um, a room full of people waiting to hear a sermon. And we can't get the sound system to work. Something like that. Last night it was very different because I was ready and there were two people there. I think one was Karen, and I don't know who the other one was. It was not my wife. <laughs> it was just one of those weird things. And I'm like, what happened? <laughs> and uh, it, it should have clued me in to the fact that this morning was going to be one of those mornings because I forgot my liturgy stuff with all my notes and everything. But fortunately, I did not forget my sermon. So uh, I don't have to fly back. And uh, Genesis 23. Let's hear God's word. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered, Abraham, hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead with the choicest of our tombs. None of us will hold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price... Let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the city, at the gate of his city. No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth four hundred shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites. Before all who went in, at the gate of this city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan, 
the field and the cave that is in it, were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would send forth uh, your light into our hearts and minds this morning. We need you to help us to behold the glory of the gospel and how it transforms how we see everything, including death. So break through our pain, our sadness, our fear, and all other barriers to transform our hearts and our minds. In the name of Jesus, who tasted death, to free us from our slavery to the fear of death. Amen. Some people have said that space is the final frontier. Some people have have said, uh, (laughs) some people have said that the oceans are the final frontier. But I'm here to say that I think death is the final frontier. We have had people go to space and come back. Now, obviously, they haven't traveled all the way to the other side of space, but they've been there. We have had people who have gone deep into the ocean and have come back. But death, death is the place from which almost no one comes back. There have been a few that have been, that have been resuscitated by Jesus and the, apostle, the, the prophets in the Old Testament and even by the apostles. But there is only one who has been resurrected and he now sits in heaven. None of us in this room, I think, anyway, has died. But we have heard many theories about it. You will hear all kinds of ideas that people have. What happens when you die? And Amy and I watch House, and he thinks that nothing happens. Okay? This text is about death. But it's also about faith in the midst of death. And really, this is the first time we see someone burying their dead in Scripture. So this is kind of important. The big idea this morning is that even death cannot thwart the promises of God. We start with the idea of that we are called to trust and mourn in the face of death. Uh, Moses sets the scene for us in that Sarah, who is ten years younger, so more likely to die after Abraham, actually dies before Abraham. What's interesting about this is that Moses says that she's 127 years old, and this is the only place in Scripture where you will find how old a woman is at her death. This ought to be a key to us of how important this particular woman was to the plan of God. She was not merely incidental, but God honors her by setting her apart in a very unique way in the rest of his scriptures. But she dies 60-plus years after she and her husband have left Ur and Haran and gone down into a land that God promised one day would be theirs. And guess what? To this point, it wasn't theirs. Her son, who is part of the promise, is 37 years old, and they still don't have any land in the promised land. Okay, All is not done. God's purpose is not accomplished. And yet Sarah passes away. She dies. Think about this for a moment. 
They've been in Canaan for over 60 years. Think of all the numerous changes that they have seen take place in Canaan. I had one of those little light bulb moments when I went to Epcot years ago. And uh, there's that one part where uh, you're, you go in that dome, and it shows you the progress of technology over time. And it basically starts when my grandmother was a child. And to see all of the changes that my grandmother experienced, going from all you've got is radio to black and white TV. How many of you would have been excited about black and white TV? Okay, I remember having a black and white TV. Yes, I saw a hand back there. (laughs) How could she ever imagined TVs this big that hang on your wall? When, when, when Fahrenheit 451 was written, how could he imagine that really there would become TVs that would be the size of a wall? And yet, we have the ability to do that. Microwave ovens. Some of you have never known a time without a microwave oven. That was like novel for my grandmother. You know, she was in her 60s when microwaves became popular. A lot of changes. And so even though there weren't the technological changes, we see that there were numerous changes within the land of Canaan over 60 years. Kings come, kings go. Peoples come, peoples go. We see actually something has happened here. The Amorites have been in some way displaced by the Hittites, at least around Hebron, which is right near Mamre which is where he used to live. And so what happens is is that for some reason they have gone back. They've gone out of Beersheba, and I don't know if they're snowbirds. It's possible because Hebron was higher higher elevation. It was very fertile, and so they could have brought the, the herds up there in the summer so they had plenty to eat and then brought them back down to winter down by, the, by Beersheba, which was the, the gateway of the desert. Probably did this, Okay. But it is there near Mamre in Hebron that she passes away. And how does Abraham respond? He weeps, he mourns. Now, we've all seen footage of Middle Eastern people mourning, right? <laughs> Have you ever? It's loud, it can sometimes be violent. They like the, no, they didn't have guns back then, so they couldn't do that. But still, you get the idea. He's lamenting, he's wailing, he's shedding loud tears, he's giving full vent to the loss of his wife. This is not an insignificant thing that happens to him. It's not, you know, after 60 years, some of you might go, I'm glad they're gone. He's not that way. He misses the wife of his youth, and he's pouring out his loss before God. And brothers and sisters, stifling sadness is not a sign of faith. Moses is not sinning when he lays it all out before God. This is not sin. This is not weakness. We lament. We mourn. We weep. Okay? We experience a very real loss that takes place. A person who was there all the time now isn't there at all. 
perceptible to us anyway. Okay? We can and we should mourn. My experience with this is rather limited. I remember when, um, I barely remember anything about when my grandfather's passed away. And I remember that when my mother's mother passed away, I was at college, but I was like half an hour away from where my grandmother lived. And my mother said, stay there, don't worry about it. So it, it was sort of new for me when one of my girlfriend's father passed, he passed away in a car accident while she was still in high school, getting ready to graduate. That hit me more than any of the losses I, you know, I had experienced thus far. But we don't just mourn. We don't just lay it all out. We also mourn with hope. We as Christians can, can mourn with hope precisely because we have the promise of the resurrection and we have the promise of the new Jerusalem. We know that this is not the end. That this is not, you know, God has not failed. We know that there's something else, there's something more than what Dr. Gregory House wants to admit. Okay? We have gospel promises that give us hope. Now, unbelievers, they mourn, but they mourn without a solid hope. They, some of them have a fleeting hope, a vaporous sort of hope that they will see people on the other side, but there is no grounding in the gospel. There's no relationship with Jesus Christ that would anticipate the fact that they would be each other in a blissful place. If they are together, it will be in a very difficult, ugly place. The sting of death is strong for them because they think it's oblivion. They think it's the end of everything. But for us, the gospel ought to produce trust. We, we ought to see that God is faithful to His promise to save all who believe. And so we know that from places like Psalm 116, the death of His saints is precious in His sight and that He welcomes His saints into His presence because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That they're not just sitting somewhere. But they behold Him as they await the resurrection. Okay. And so death does not mean that God has failed to keep any of His promises. And so faith in God's promises actually frees us to mourn, but not to be overcome with mourning, that we might despair. You catch that slight difference there? Secondly, in addition to, to trusting and mourning in the face of death, we also trust and move forward based on God's promises. Because it's interesting, you have her death, and then you have this whole chapter that's really about Abraham moving forward, in a sense. It would be understandable for Abraham to take his, his wife's body, to wrap her up, to preserve her, and to bring her back to the homeland. That would be understandable. Okay? Because he is an alien, he is a sojourner, he has no property there, there's no place for him to bury her, and it would be normal for us to think that he would just kind of bring it back to where they came from. But that would be a sign of unbelief. In this instance, it's not like, you know, I'm sorry, I didn't, didn't ask you about this. Chris's grandmother, okay, they brought her back to Dallas where the, where the family is, okay? That's not a sign of unbelief. But there, they have something different. They had a promise that this land would be theirs, and Abraham wants to bury his wife in the land that God has promised him. 
And so he's going to act based on that promise. He has not given up on God's promise. He has not given up on God. And so he approaches the Hittites at the gate of the city. And this is where business was publicly done so that there were witnesses to testify as to what actually transpired. Okay, so he shows up. But notice what he says. I have down alien and stranger in the ESV. It's got, let's see, sojourner and foreigner. Okay? Pointing to the idea that he is, he is one who is a resident alien, that he is one who is dependent upon their hospitality to stay there. Okay? He comes with humility. He humbles himself himself before them, and he reminds them of his status. Interesting, isn't it? He could have taken a very different approach to this. Uh, this week, yet another um, professional athlete got arrested for DUI, and I think there must be a handbook or something, because almost every time one of these athletes gets arrested, what inevitably comes out of their mouth is this, Don't you know who I am? <laughs> It's like every time you read the, the accounts, they all say it. It's got to be there. There's got to be an orientation for professional athletes getting ready to be in trouble. First thing you must say is, don't you know who I am? Okay? As if that will suddenly get them off the hook. Oh, man, you're Miguel Cabrera. You play for the Detroit Tigers. Of course I'm going to let you off. Go kill somebody on the road. It's okay. Okay? Pride. That's how usually we respond in a situation like this. We want to put our best foot forward. We want to sell ourselves, all of that kind of stuff. But Abraham does not do that. I am a foreigner and a sojourner among you. I have no rights here. But I have the boldness to make this request that I would have a place to bury my wife. Did you get that? He's humble and yet he's also bold. He doesn't demand, but he recognizes who he is from their perspective, and yet he makes this bold request of them. Not a demand. He makes this bold request. Okay? Because he has no ordinary right to own land there, but he's acting upon the promise. I like how they respond to him. That you are a mighty prince among us. He's been there long enough, and they have, they have seen everything that's gone down. They know that he's the guy who took on the four kings of the north in one. He didn't have to bring that up. They all know that. They probably sing tales in the local tavern, you know, songs about this uh, event that took place. But anyway, they, they, they see him. God has made Abraham great in their eyes. And so they are willing to honor this foreigner, this sojourner. And so they initially say, sure, just pick out a burial place and we'll give that to you. Okay? But notice what Abraham does next. And he does this twice in this text. He bows down before them. He prostrates himself before them. He continues to humble himself before them. He does not act with this demanding spirit. He doesn't play that, don't you know who I am card? 
And so we, we see this sort of interesting ancient Near East debate kind of, uh, or dialogue, or haggling kind of erupt uh, right before us. And what part of what's going on is that Ephron wants to give him some land. Abraham wants to buy the land. Because he wants it to be in the public record. He wants it to be in their minds. He owns this. The field and the cave. That this will belong to him. And it's, and there's sort of, there's a confusing little, you know, the way they, they kind of, uh, they kind of go about this thing. And there's that one, that one section where Ephron kind of goes, you know, oh, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Go bury your dead. He's almost sounding like, I don't care about the 400, but it's really, it's, my price is 400. Wink, wink. Nod, nod. Nudge, nudge. Okay? Abraham doesn't quibble. Now, all the commentators, for some reason, are saying that he basically overpays. He refuses to negotiate and lower the price. He is not trying to get this on the cheap. He overpays to get a, a piece of land to bury his wife. He wants a public sale. He wants permanence. Think about this. His wife just died. And Abraham is still focused upon the promise of God. Do you know how hard that is? I've watched people who have lost loved ones, and usually what happens is that the, the spouse is not the one who handles most of the arrangements. One of the kids come, and they work with most of that. Because the spouse is so overwhelmed by what just happened, and yet here we find Abraham, not Isaac, who's an adult. He's 37. He lives at home. He's, he's got no kids. He's got no wife. But it's Abraham who's more moving forward with God's plan and program. Okay? It is Abraham. And what is so difficult for us at times, and, and perhaps you have seen this, the person who gives up life when their spouse dies. It's almost like everything or, or someone significant to them dies. It doesn't have to be a spouse. But it's, you've seen it when, like, with the children, more, more stark. The room never changes. It's like it's frozen in time. And some people, when their spouses die, it's almost the same thing. It's, it's like life just kind of stopped. It's frozen. They, they, they can't get rid of the, the, the spouse's clothing, which I can understand that because their clothing bears their smell. And it triggers the memory. I understand this. And yet, the gospel calls us to move forward. To, to, not, to not be stuck in the past. And so Abraham moves forward. And so we find that finally, after 60 plus years, even though he is far richer than any of us in this room, Abraham finally owns a sliver of Canaan, a tomb. How would you like to come to the end of your life and that's all you own, land-wise? You'd think of yourself as a failure. All I own is a tomb. 
And yet for Abraham, in light of his context, and, and I mean, this is amazing progress. This is the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise to him 60 plus years ago. And so faith in God's promises frees us to move forward despite the death of loved ones. And so I want us to see one additional thing besides those, is that God accomplishes His purposes across generations. Death often seems to undermine God's promise. You know, people would be thinking, oh, Sarah's dead now. Did God's promise fail Sarah? But we see when we, when we look, when we stand back from that and look at it in the greater scheme of thing of time, we see that the field and the burial site are the first fruits of the land. They're God's down payment, so to speak. They're God's guarantee that one day his descendants are going to have the whole kit and caboodle. Right? I think of the original audience that received this, and I think this is very pertinent to them because they are watching the Exodus generation die in the wilderness. When will we get to the promised land? They have to know that it doesn't stop with the death of that generation but that God will fulfill His promise in the next generation, the wilderness generation, the ones who were born after they left Egypt. So we, we see that God's purposes and promises span multiple generations. It isn't only about one generation. It only isn't about your generation, whatever generation that is. And thankfully, we have multiple generations here but we tend to narrow things down to think not just about me. We might widen it from beyond me to my generation. And God says, no. It's about more than your generation. I move slowly for a reason, he says. They span the generations. And so there are, there are generations of Christians, multiple generations of believers in Christ who have died living in faith who did not receive all of the promises. We read about that in Hebrews 11. We see things like this. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. And I love this. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. I think that's what Jesus means when he says, Abraham saw this and rejoiced. Saw me and rejoiced. Back to Hebrews 11. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. God wasn't done. There's still a process that's going on. And so we see that like Abraham and Sarah we too should welcome those promised things from a distance. We need to look and see them and anticipate them and long for them and pray for them and work toward them. But remember, God is not unconcerned. 
Just as we welcome the promised things, He welcomes His saints into their eternal rest. What do we see in the glimpses of heaven that we find in the book of Revelation? We don't see God and angels alone. We see God and angels and a multitude of people from every tribe, every tongue, every language. We see some of the fruit of that multi-generational promise taking place. We see people there awaiting the resurrection but still worshiping God, their Redeemer, their Savior. But there's something else that we see in Hebrews 11. We see this at the very end of the chapter. God had planned something better for us so that, it's talking about the covenant, the new, the new covenant, only together with us could they be made perfect or complete. You, you catch with that. Though they are in the presence of Christ, there's an incompleteness about them that is directly tied to the fact that the rest of the elect are not there yet. Their enjoyment of heaven is not full as it could possibly be. It's full! But it's not overflowing yet because not everyone is there yet. And that's what we will one day experience if Christ tarries. We will be there, but we'll be waiting for the the next generation to come in or possibly numerous generations to come in. He has something better for us. The long-gone saint's hope is not complete without us. And our hope is not complete without them and without those who come after us. So death ought to make us to long for the better country. The city whose architect and builder is God Himself. The new Jerusalem which will come down from the heavens and be on the new earth, the renewed earth. But it's not just that. Death ought to remind us that we need to pass this hope on to other generations. They need that hope. They need that truth. They need to know that there is a Redeemer. It doesn't stop with us. It must keep going on until the time when Jesus returns. So, to wrap this up, death reminds us that God's purposes take time. I don't know why. He decided to do it that way. But His promises are far greater than our paltry agendas. Touched by the death of a loved one, the gospel frees us to mourn hopefully and to move forward with our lives. Anticipating death drives home God's transgenerational purposes, which ought to free us from the smallness of the now and in the me. So, I guess I wonder, are you working on something big? Are you still focused on the now and the me? Let's pray.
Father, um, we, we thank you that we belong to a long line of believers that spans thousands of, gener- of years into the past. And from our perspective, uh, untold, unseen, unknown years into the future. But we're grateful that it's known to you. We thank you that we are a part of this bigger plan, this greater plan. We thank you that they are only complete with us and that we are only complete with them. So give us hearts that are shaped by this bigger, better plan so that we're committed to a multi-ethnic and multi-generational ministry. Set our hearts on that amazing multitude that worships around your throne. We ask this in the name of Jesus, the Lamb of God who purchased people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every language to be priests before you. Amen.